0: There'll be some other announcements at the end of our service this morning about those who need prayer and other activities that are going on, but right now I'd like to you to direct your attention to the lesson this morning on the love of wisdom. I know that's an odd title for a sermon. I should have just called it philosophy, because that's what the word philosophy means, the love of wisdom. Philos is love, and sophos is wisdom, and so... To the Greeks, uh, the love of philosophy was a love of wisdom. And yet there's a, there was a big difference between what the Greeks' definition of wisdom was and what the Hebrew understanding of wisdom is from the Bible, and also the Roman view of wisdom. Uh, the Hebrew, and we I think I did a sermon on this a few years ago, but there is a difference. The Hebrew understanding from books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth is much more practical and it's centered on God's law rather than just their speculations about the world that the Greeks envisioned and of course there's a lot of good look humans are the same and the problems of humans have, have all, are always have always been the same so the Greeks were wrestling with the same philosophical problems that we are today and you give lectures about this it may they when you read something like Aristotle or Socrates, which I've done a little of, you know, it can be a little obtuse, but they were really wrestling with the same things we struggle with today. What's the meaning of the world? What, what, what's the definition of things? How do we understand the world? What, make, what makes it make sense? Does it make any sense? They were struggling with the same problems, and that's what philosophy is about. Philosophy and religion are really looking at the same subject. Religion is looking at it from the standpoint of God's understanding and opinion about that. Philosophy tends to look at it from a non-religious perspective without God in the mixture of things. This is, by the way, I think a statue of Athena or Sophia, the Greek goddess of wisdom. Not that that matters, but I had to have something to put on the first slide. No, no, they personified wisdom. The Greeks and Romans did. They personified it as a goddess. It's interesting, though, because the Bible does also, the Bible in the Book of Proverbs, chapter three, in particular, maybe in those chapters around that, personify wisdom and call it a she, and, and, and the the Greek kind of did the same thing They had a goddess of wisdom, and so um, that makes that just makes no sense. But I'm just teasing. Uh, the Bible personifies wisdom as a she. Now I'm going to start over here somewhere, go there and come back to where we started if you'll just bear with me today in what we got. But I want to start with a passage in the book of John and read the, uh, you know, more than we usually read, maybe 10 verses or so, to get us started on this subject. And you'll see as we go along how this encounter of Jesus with the Pharisees hopefully will make sense to you when we talk about the love of wisdom. Wisdom then is just, is is knowledge applied to practical living. I said in the radio this morning the old definition of wisdom and knowledge, the difference between wisdom and knowledge is that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing that not to put it in a fruit salad. So there's a difference. You can have knowledge, some people have knowledge, but they don't have the wisdom to know how to live what to do with the knowledge that they do have. This is what you this is what you're seeing around you. That's what kind of prompts this sermon. What you're seeing around you that's disturbing to a lot of people is that you see people with great educations but they don't have any wisdom about how to live and they don't even know the simplest things. What seem like the simplest things are a mystery to them because they're so smart, it seems. And there's a real more basic reason for that that I want to get to. Well, we 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 see these political politicians and other people say things and We say, oh, they're just crazy. I don't buy that. I don't believe they're crazy. They may be evil. And that may be why you don't understand what they're saying. You know, They may be foolish, but I don't think they're crazy. Don't give people that excuse, unless they really are crazy. But very few people are. So don't give them the excuse that they don't know what a woman is, that they're crazy or whatever. They have a reason for saying what they do, and it's usually intellectual. But in, in reality, it's emotional. And so it's a little bit different than you appear. But let's look at what Jesus says here in John 8. He's having a conversation with these Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews. Really smart religious people, see. And he is basically accusing them of not truly being Abraham's children. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. You you say, I'm a child of Abraham, you're a child of Abraham, you act like you're religious, but you're trying to kill me. Why is that, he's saying? Well, it's because my my teaching has no place in you. There's no way it can land and find any place to take root in you, because your hearts are so different. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So we both follow our fathers. I'm following my father, you're following your father. And they answered him, and they said, Abraham is our father. And he said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Don't we have a saying, uh, like father, like son? Well, I'll tell you, for a little bit that we believe that, ancient people really believe that. Like father, like son. And he's saying that here. You say you're Abraham's children, Abraham wouldn't kill me. He said he longed to see my day and so forth. He was looking for me to come, but you want to kill me. So he says, you have a father and you're doing his works. Uh Uh-oh, I sense something coming here. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself but he sent me. Now, what's his basis for saying that? Well, in the, in the context of this, he's been doing miracles among them. He's been doing things that no man can do. And and so even Nicodemus in chapter 3 says that we know you're a prophet from God because no man can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. So Nicodemus the Pharisee saw this. That's what Jesus is saying. i doing the things that my father sent me to do. is right in front of your eyes. The evidence of, my, of what I'm saying is there, but you won't receive it. And so he goes on and says, why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. I think a better translation is this. Why do you not understand my speech or my words? Because you're not able to hear my word. They could, the word hear means accept in this case or understand. So why is it that you can't understand me, you say? Well, here's the answer, verse 44. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do or it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So it says, the reason that you can't understand me is not because I'm not being clear as they accused him of that before or not, uh, or some other reason along that line or because I'm not saying anything that's intelligent. The reason is, and it's not because you're crazy or you're dumb, it's because you don't want to do what I'm saying. You don't want to do what's right. You want to do what your father taught you to do, which is wrong. The devil is your father. Satan is your father, and you want to do that. Essentially, what people, and this is a problem today, people want to do what they want to do, and so therefore, they're going to reject what you say. I've seen this over and over again in life. I'm going to get ahead of myself here. There was a young man that I knew. Well, I met his wife first. Uh, they were had mutual, we had friends in the church and his uh, mutual friend said, well, would you like to talk to him? Because he has all these questions about whether the Bible's the true word of God. Why well, he doesn't really believe the Bible and he, he, maybe you can help him uh, see he should take the Bible seriously. I said, okay, very smart guy. So we sat and we talked. And... Uh, I don't want to say his name, although I'm sure he's not ashamed of this story, but in any event, we we talked for a little while I gave him, I showed him about the authenticity of the Greek texts and all the intellectual stuff and historically and how many manuscripts we have for the New Testament compared to other things and all that stuff. And he listened to all that and we talked and, and then as we began to talk a little bit more about some of that stuff, he tells me that Well, I think my real problem is I just, I've just had an affair and my wife and I are having problems and I know I'm wrong. I know I was wrong about that and all this kind of stuff. And he goes on to tell me about his whole approach to business. He was a very successful person, whole approach to business and all these things. And you know what the problem there was? And I I baptized him within a few days. I don't, maybe it was right there, maybe it was soon. Soon after that. Now he's an elder in a church somewhere. Okay, He was a young man. You know what the problem there was? Typical. The problem was not intellectual, although that's the way it was presented. His problem with the gospel was not intellectual. He didn't disregard the Bible because he had studied it and found it to be wanting and and couldn't substantiate any historical claim to his authenticity. His problem was moral. He wanted to live his own life. And that's when he more or less said eventually, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I ran on business that way. I treated people that way. I treated my wife that way. I, wanted to, I was very adamant. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so the Bible is, he knew instinctively, the Bible is in his way. The Bible and God want to stop him from doing what he wants to do and make him do what's right. But he didn't want to do that. And so you would just dismiss the Bible. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you want to do the will of your father. That's why. And you can't understand what I'm saying to you. It's not that I'm not saying something sensible. It's because you don't like what I'm saying. And I believe that a large percentage, I don't know what it is, of the unbelief in this country, individually and collectively, is because of that very thing. How do I know that? Because that's what was going on here. Things aren't any different. The reason many of you are people that you know will not accept the scriptures or not accept simple moral teaching is because they don't want to do what it says. And they know it instinctively. They just don't want... It's even why young people, when I was a teenager, I didn't like what I... I didn't want to believe the Bible. And I rejected it to some degree. Why? Because I was such an intellectual, I couldn't... know, because I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. Guess what? At 70 years old, Mike still doesn't want anybody to tell him what to do. So we've got to fix that problem someday. I'm better than I used to be about that. But the truth is, I knew in in my gut that if I upheld the religious beliefs that I was being taught, I would be restricted from doing what I wanted to do. I knew this. And everybody else knows it too. And that's why they reject it. Simple, isn't it? Nothing astounding there. But that's what Jesus is saying. But he says, but because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Who can say what I'm saying is wrong? Which of you can do that, he said to these men? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. You know, we, we put a lot of emphasis in our society on education. And education is important, but the question is, who's doing the educating and what is the education comprised of? Education is has a value, but without the right kind of instruction, it can be... C.S. Lewis put it this way. He contrasted wisdom from with cleverness. And he says, education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make a man a more clever devil. We think if we could just educate our kids, they would do better. And that's why they're involved in drugs and crime and, and immorality, because they don't have enough education. And we can just give them sex education and that will help them then to be, to not do all these things, for example, or drug education. I ask you, who's doing the educating? I've been involved in some of those kind of education and and from a secular viewpoint and in school districts and stuff. And so I came away with the understanding, who's doing the educating and what are they educating? That's the question, not whether we should have education. Who's doing it? What are they saying? Because Instruction without morals, without God's morals, leads people to be a more clever devil. That's all. That's as Lewis. I think there's a lot to that. That's what we have in our society. Very smart people who are wicked because they have no spiritual or moral wisdom, moral instruction, or knowledge. And so they're very clever. We think some, ah, okay, so we're at the airport yesterday picking up Gary and Jan Barker last night. Judy pulls up to the curb to get... Maybe this will fit, Judy. i, I got to work the sense even. She, she, has, she knows this what, what happened, but she cannot figure out what I'm going to say. That's the beauty of listening to me preach, honey. I'm trying to tell you this for 48 years. So we pull up there, and she says... She's driving. She says, why don't you get out and go see if you can find them. I think they're, they're right there at the baggage claim, and get them over here quick. So there's not anybody there, hardly. So we get I get out. I go in and find them, and, you know, getting. These two old people—they're not even here this morning, you know. Gary and Jan getting there, waiting for the luggage to come, get them all out there. And time I got out there, Judy's not there anymore. I even sent Gary out ahead of me. He said, "Go sit down, Gary. Don't, you don't need to be here." He goes out, and they're all gone. Me and Jan are standing there on the curb, and I knew, I knew, I knew, some overzealous security guard or policeman came along and chased her away when there's no one there because she was parked there for a couple minutes. <sighs> Made away from to all come back. Okay, so here, here's my point. I said to her when she when I got in the car, I said, you know, I, I can just un, just how brilliant this security stuff we have is. Just how oh, we're being safe. Really? You mean to tell me after 20 years, terrorists still haven't figured out if I just drive around and come back and drop my ball, blow my bomb up anytime I want to? How is making them go around stopping anybody from blowing something up? How is making you move? If if they want to blow it, terrorists. It's taken twenty years for them to figure out. Man, this American security system is just so so powerful. We can't circumvent it. If they want to circumvent it, they will. If a man invents a lock, some other man can invent a key. And we, but we, we're clever, but we're not very smart. Sometimes. Now, my point about that is. If somebody wants to do wrong, you can make all the rules you want to and they will still get the job done. If your children are intent on doing wrong, all the rules you got, take away their cell phones, do all that. And I did a lot of stuff without a cell that hadn't even been invented yet. And I did all that stuff. And my grandfather did all that stuff and they still was all had horse and buggies. If people... What has to change is the heart, not all the rules you put in place and all the clever devices you have and software you have to keep kids from doing wrong. What has to change is the heart. What had to change in me was my heart as to whether I wanted to do what was wrong, really did. And I had to fight that and still fight that. It's not a, it's not a matter because you get a certain age, all of a sudden you, you change. What you want changes, but you have to change your heart. And that's where education can help you to have more knowledge. But until you know, Not to put the tomato in the fruit salad with some wisdom. It won't do you any good. Joseph Pierce, he's a Catholic writer. He said, there's a world of difference between wisdom and cleverness. In fact, truth be told, there's much more than a world of difference between them because what separates wisdom and cleverness can become the abyss that separates heaven from hell. The devil is much cleverer than we are but few would consider making an eternal enemy of God an act of wisdom. He's very clever. Doesn't the Bible speak of he, when he has devices and schemes that he uses to trick people? It's always tricking people. And he'll deceive your heart as quick as he can. He's very clever. Is he wise? No, he's very unwise. In fact, even today, he still attacks you even though he knows he's lost. He knows since the resurrection of Christ that he has lost the battle. He cannot win. He cannot defeat God. But he still keeps 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 at it because he's clever. And he'll invent new ways, new things. You think you've got it figured out and you'll, he, you'll he'll find a way around it if he wants you. Intelligence is not a guarantor of goodness. Oh, we make our kids smart. We've got a good education system. Do we really? What would make our education a good education system? Just because we teach kids, you know, the tables of the elements and chemistry and STEM and math and, and English literature, will that make it good? It's like, well, our kids need to learn American history. Okay, who's going to teach it? And what are they going to teach? See, we have people teaching American history now, and they're teaching a wrong history, a degraded history, even untrue history. So it doesn't matter. Education can be good or bad. Do we have any wisdom? To see what should be taught. Intelligence can be used in the service of cruelty or wickedness. Or in the weaving of lies or in the service of a host of other sins. In the absence of virtue and wisdom, intelligence becomes a servant of evil. It's poisoned. There it is. In the absence of virtue. So, you would do much better as a parent, probably in the long run. Help your kids get an education. Learn something. If you want to make them happy and successful people in the eyes of God, you need to give them some wisdom, some moral virtue. Teach them that. And then they'll know as they go through their education what to listen to and what not to listen to, who to follow, who not to follow. That's the key to raising children that'll take care of you when you get old and are are pleasing to God. So go a little further about this wisdom thing. We may make a joke about it, about the fruit salad, but it's really an extremely important concept, wisdom is in the Bible. Because... The Bible, for example, says in John 1.1 1, 1, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That, that phrase, the word, is probably capitalized in most translations. That word in Greek is logos. We get the word logical from that, or logic from that. In fact, that word meant rationality, the, the process of clear thinking, proper thinking, and logical reasoning, the inquiries of science were considered logos. Uh, and so uh, we have all these log words in English, dialogue, epilogue, you know, travel. We use that word log and it means the study of. That's what it means. Biology, L-O-G part in there is the study of life, for example. So we use this L-O, we use this word logos all the time in English and don't even realize we're doing it because it's a scientific word about rational thought, and it's it's become a part of science. And so that the Bible says that Jesus, who the man we know is Jesus, who was the word in eternity, became flesh, it says, and dwelt among us in the form of Jesus, the Christ. And so he is the logic, the rationality, the mind of God. So reasoning then is the mental, it means in Greek, literally in the dictionary, reasoning, the mental faculty or motive behind things. So in scripture, reason and wisdom are absolutely entwined, intertwined with each other. When you read that, when you read that verse, those verses I've referred to in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 3 about wisdom, a lot of people have taken those to almost be messianic. Because they're talking about Christ as the Logos, the mind of God, the rationality, the wisdom of God. So true reason, true reason has both its source and its end in the divine. Now what's happened in history is this. It used to be understood early after Jesus came and before that time by the Jews and then later early Christians that that. Science, study of the world around us and God and the word of God were intertwined together. They weren't at odds. But in the, what was called the Enlightenment or the, the Renaissance, there came philosophically a separation of the two. So we've been taught in Western culture that anything religious is anti-science. There's science on the one hand and there's religion over here. And they don't belong anywhere together. We've got to get all the religion out of society that we can so we can have all the science. And science is the God. We even capitalize it. We capitalize science. We have people walking around saying, I am the science. You know, it's very very Greek and Roman almost in its godlike nature. I am science. And what they're trying to do is separate any any understanding of morality and virtue and integrity and even reason itself. Because reason is susceptible to this. There are people today saying reason is, an ev- is a sign, reasoning is a sign of white supremacy for crying out loud. They're just trying to destroy the, destroy the concepts of reason and integrity and virtue. But in scripture, they're in, they're together. That has nothing to do with race or color or politics or anything else. But, Everything today is, I suppose. So so reason has both its source in the divine, because reasoning... We're made in the image of God. How is that? One of the ways that that's true is our faculties. Every human has a rational capacity that animals simply do not have. Even the ones that we consider the least intelligent humans have a rational capacity that can be refined and elevated... Beyond anything that exists by nature in the animal kingdom. Because that's part of the divine thing that he gave us. Understanding how to use our minds. And and the end of all of this is the Logos. In the end, the word is everything. So God's mind is rational. That's why God made a world that can be understood. The basis of all this modern science that we enjoy is what the people early... Uh, early on, believed that the um, rational God's mind, excuse me, it's a good thing I don't talk for a living, the rational mind of God had made a world that could be understood and analyzed. And so they took their minds and began to try to understand the world and they developed scientific principles, not only in science, but also in, in legal things that matched up with God's revelation and God's wisdom to understand and break it down. We we see it's, it's gone kind of it's coming back in a circle. We got away from the idea that God had anything at all to do with with science, and now you find that so many scientists, when they begin to look at DNA and all this other uh, intricacies of the human cells and all the things, they they're actually coming back to a belief that this is done by a designer, and that's happening all over the world because they're using their rational minds. Now then, look at. If this is so, that reason and wisdom and the divine are all intertwined, how is it that the use of reason can lead to so much wrongheadedness, so many crazy wrongheaded things going on? So, so that you say, oh, it's just crazy, because it doesn't make any sense what you hear people say. Supposedly smart people with lots of letters after the name say these things, you know? Well, the answer is that wrongheadedness is always connected to wrongheartedness. That's the answer. Isn't that what Jesus said? They were, the, the, these very smart men, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't get where they were because they were not intelligent or educated. They're so wrong-headed about Jesus because their heart was wrong. That's what was the problem. It was their heart that was wrong. They were self-willed. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They didn't want anybody telling them what to do. It's pride. You see. The absence of love which poisons the intellectual faculties. Thereby preventing reason from serving its purpose. And so you can't really pursue objective truth. We can't pursue objective truth even in science today. Because if you try to pursue objective truth and you say something that the government doesn't approve of, well, then you get canceled and shut down and censored. It's happening all over the place. There's only certain things that can be said. Because it's what the opinion of the uh, of the CDC is or somebody else. We get sh- shut down. Can't say it. Impossible to say it. Now, you can go along with that if you want call it misinformation, but the fact is it's a stifling of scientific inquiry, and and what's happened in the universities is that people that disagree with the mainstream of what's being said in many of these cases are simply being shut. They simply shut up. They know they can't keep their job if they speak out, because too many of them have lost their jobs for speaking out, and so scientific inquiry just stops. You can't. You can't do any research that might show in some way that boys are different than girls. Just cannot be done. If they even think your your experiments and your prod child project is going to show that boys are different than girls, especially if they're better at something than girls, you will not be funded. You will be you'll be ostracized for even bringing it up. And I can give you examples of this. How does that? How is that scientific inquiry? It's the same thing with Jesus here. It's con- all, all these things are connected to wrongheadedness, meaning moral deficiencies. And so, how is it that pride then is, I call pride the absence of love, because here are three, here are three other things that are linked humility. Um, I started to say, I had my mind in one order, started to say me in a different order. And, and, and I blew a fuse. <laughs> love, humility, and pride all are related to each other. Love, in the Bible definition of love, which is the true definition, is seeking the best interest of the other person. It isn't a feeling. It, uh, it, it can be accompanied by feelings, but it's not the feeling. That's, but we define it in our society as a feeling yeah. So we're supposed to love. We're supposed to love everyone. We're supposed to feel warm toward everyone. Oh, unless they disagree with us about something, and then we don't. Or they're not on the approved list of people we can like. Then we can't like them anymore. But but love is a no. Love is not a feeling. Love in the Bible is active. It is seeking the best interest of the other person. So if I'm going to love somebody, I I try to figure out and do the best of my ability what is in their best interest toward them, and what I say and do toward them. I could be wrong about that, but a lot of love is is mistaken, but that's the idea of love. Now that is the opposite of pride. That's humility. Love and humility are just brother and sister. There's a link right up. Because a a proud man is not seeking your best interest when he deals with you. He's seeking his best interest. He wants you to agree that what we're going to do is in his best interest. He wants you to agree with him so he can get what he wants. A proud man is seeking his own interest. He's not seeking your best interest. A humble man does things that even cost him, that are not beneficial to him because he seeks your best interest. So, is, So that's how love and humility are linked together. If you want to show true love to somebody, be humble, think of them, put them first, and do what's best for them. That's how you love them. That's how you act if you're humble. Even if you're conceited. You have to act that way. Now, pride then is lifting up yourself and putting it at the, putting yourself and your own interests at the top of every, all the other hierarchies. Everything has to funnel through that idea of your importance. And I wish I could remember the headline now. I about, I, I laughed out loud uh, eating my cereal the other morning and said something to Judy because I read a headline that there's a new uh, study out that, that narcissists are um, actually, well, what was it, people who are uh, self... Uh, That people who have a low self-esteem are actually narcissists. Guess who's been saying that for 40 years? Getting root for saying it by even by some of you probably. Yes. People with low self-esteem are so focused on their feelings often to often. There's no 100% of anything. Often are so focused on their own feelings and the mistreatment that they've received which caused them to have a low self-esteem that they are actually narcissistic about it. They become so self-focused that they can't function well with other people. Now, it's amazing. God says, God says that on the Bible because he doesn't ever say low self-esteem is man's problem. He says pride is man's problem. So we either believe what he says or we don't. Now, and now they're saying, oh well, we're now discovering something new here, aren't we? Of course, that'll be ripped because that doesn't fit the, the model. Now let's go back real quick. So pride then poisons things. It poisons everything about it. That, that's my problem for, with, with a lot of the stuff that goes on in, in critical theories or in what's commonly in, in called anti-racism today. That's my problem with it. You, many of you have known my life, you know the, of my work and my attitudes about racial things. And they are. I don't believe that they are racist at all. They could be. Everybody can be. But I don't believe they are. And the practical work that's been done is not. But because it doesn't fit a common narrative, uh, you know, you can be criticized. But here's the point I'm going to make. How is it going to work? How is it really going to work in our society when I tell this group of people, you need, to, you need to have pride in who you are as distinct from this group of people and then this group of people has to have pride in who they are and then we're going to pick and choose which ones we elevate in which year. How is that going to work to create unity and harmony and brotherhood? Well, I can tell you how it's going to work. It isn't going to work because it isn't biblical and you're going to have a lot of bad results of that. Yes, you might have some kid that's encouraged, but you might have a whole group of people stand up and say, "Well, what about my race? What about my color? What about my group?" And they're going to exert themselves, and you have all these competing groups in society that each want to gain control and power. This, this is the story of human history. Human—that's the story of all of human history—is that kind of competition among different, as the Bible calls them, nations or ethnic groups. Vying for superiority over the other. Christ came along and said, I'm going to make one new man. He said, he's very clear about it. All men have all been made of one blood. All of us are the same. And I'm going to make one new man in Christ. That's what the gospels say. One new man of all these nations and ethnic groups and peoples. we set out in our society now, because we're so smart, to, to boost up this one or that one or the other one next week and all in competition. And I, I could give you examples if I just make you mad about this, but if you even go, you even if you even go into the LGBTQAI plus movement, did I get them all? You will see the competition among the L's and the B's and the T's and the G's and all that, and pretty soon you're going to see the competition with the pluses, which are the what do they call them now. Um, Minor Attracted Persons, MAPS, that's the plus, the MAPS, the Minor attract they used to be called pedophiles, but now they're MAPS, Minor Attracted Persons are part of this whole thing, that's the plus in most people's thinking, I'm not just making that up either, and so you have this competition, even in that you have competition, for my group is better than your group, my identity is better than your identity. How's that going to lead to peace and harmony? Well, it doesn't. If you dig inside that whole movement, you'll find they are fractured to the core because one group wants to vie for power with the other group. So this is how pride works on a real political level, on a social level. It works that way, much less how it works in your individual life as you try to boost yourself above all the others. A lot of you spend your days playing whack-a-mole. You ever play that game? Chucky? I know a few of us been to Chuck E. Cheese before, you know, and you got the whack-a-mole game and you got your little mallet and your little gopher heads are popping up and you got to try to smack the gophers. Everybody loves whack-a-mole. Well, a lot of you spend your life playing whack-a-mole with everybody else around you so they can't stick their head up higher than yours. What do you think Instagram's about a lot of the time? And especially teenage girls and all that. Whack-a-mole's the game that you got to play. It's pride. This, this kind of dealing with people is something that we Christians have to try to crucify. We don't, not, we're not there yet. We have to keep working at crucifying this. So why don't you understand my speech, Jesus says? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You're of your father the devil and the desires of your father is his to do. So, I want to go to this last point and then I will, well, I had some other stuff here, but I've gotten too far afield. Look at the third point there. Pride prevents reason from operating properly. Pride only sees what it wants to see. Proud person only sees in interactions in a party or in a group only sees what it wants to see. Only sees what it thinks it can build itself up and knock the other person down. That's all it can see. Can it ever really arrive at the truth? Usually it can't because it's blind. It's blinded. And so, if we Christians want to, if you, if you want to advance in your career, in your studies, in your marriage, in your work, even just if you work in a factory, if you will get rid of the pride and seek to do good to others in the right way and be humble, you will see that God's wisdom will bless you. And you will be able to understand things more clearly and see the people around you more clearly. And you'll be surprised at what that looks like when you take off the blinders of pride and use your reason, use your mind, you see, to look at things and not your emotions. Well, we got to stop way over time, and I apologize for that, but I had some more to say, but we can do that some other time. If I live long enough, probably can't. But in any event, uh, I do want you to think about that. And you, as I've said before about other things, you, you may not like my application that I make. That's okay. We can disagree about applications and my examples. You, we can disagree about those. But I hope that you'll agree that the principles are right. They're from the Scripture, and so you apply the prin—you apply apply these principles. If you don't like my application, you apply them to yourself because I know they apply because God gave them. So we're going to sing as we close our service today. Number three thirty-seven. Is thy heart right with God? This is an opportunity we provide at the end of our services for people to make things right if they need to, not only with God Himself, but maybe with their fellow man. And that it can include, if you're not a Christian already, coming based on your belief in Christ, confessing his name here before men and being baptized for the remission of your sins, like the Bible says in Acts 2:38 and other places. So we'll we'll help you with that right now, today, if you're willing. Come to the front when we sing in a moment. And it gives you time to think, perhaps. I need to make some changes in my life. We can think of something specific. Well, maybe we can pray with you about that if you come to the front or something more general about your life that you need to change in direction. We can pray with you about that right now. Let your brothers and sisters pray with you. So come to the front right now as we stand and sing.